Was Jesus a failed prophet who predicted his return and the end of the world in the lifetime of his contemporaries? That's the question that we begin to ask, uh, that we begin to answer in today's episode of The Apologetics. This is Chris Date, and welcome to The Apologetics, where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe and why we believe it, and not something else. Hi, I'm Chris Date, and you're watching Theopologetics, the resurrected YouTube uh, show, or sorry, uh, the YouTube version of my resurrected podcast that I used to do. I don't know. I don't even know how to put it. Uh, but thank you for watching. If you're watching now live, as I see my friend Ben is and, and a couple of other people, Jamie and Argoski, thank you for uh, watching live. And if you're watching this after it's been um, fully aired and has been put into the archive of my YouTube channel, thank you for taking the time to watch it. I think it'll be worth your time. By way of reminder, uh, I am an adjunct professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. If you're looking for an undergraduate or graduate Christian education um, that, and, and you uh, don't have the time or the money to be able to do sort of a traditional brick-and-mortar institution type of education, then consider Trinity. Um, the prices are great and you'll get to learn from faculty uh, like myself and Braxton Hunter and Jonathan Pritchett and Leighton Flowers and Tim Stratton and a host of others. Also, this, uh, and you can find Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary at trinitysem.edu. That's trinitysem.edu. And also, just as a reminder, this podcast is part of the Trinity Commission network of podcasts. You can find the Trinity Com Commission uh, Facebook page by just searching for the Trinity Commission on Facebook, and you'll find a page that will tell you what the shows in the network uh, are. As of right now, it's The Apologetics, as well as The Bible Brodown, Trinity Radio, um, Steve Gregg's The Narrow Path, and Leighton Flowers' Soteriology 101. So, um, if you you can't even afford the time and energy for uh, an official sort of formal uh, education like the, the likes of which you would receive at Trinity Seminary, um, then you can still get an informal Christian education and all sorts of theological and apologetics topics by um, by tuning into the shows that are part of the Trinity Commission. So I hope that you'll check that out. Um, today we're going to do a bit of a Bible study and, um, and, and whereas past episodes of the show have been almost exclusively or exclusively about theology, this time we're going to start to sort of connect theology and apologetics a little bit. Um, because the topic that we're going to be discussing today, which is the doctrine of preterism, which I'm going to introduce you, my audience to, um, those of you who haven't already, aren't already familiar with it, um, it's a doctrine that not only competes with alternative eschatological views, and eschatolo eschatological is a word I'll explain in a moment, it not only competes with other uh, eschatological views, um, but it's also one that I think offers Christians an answer to a uh, difficult skeptics, a, a, diff a difficult challenge, very often challenge, uh, uh, leveled at the Christian faith by skeptics and atheists and things like that. So I'm hoping this time is going to be useful for you. Um, if this is all stuff you're already familiar with, um, if you're already a dyed-in-the-wool 
preterist like me, um, you probably don't need to tune in, and, and you can just <laughs> you can just go on and spend the rest of your day doing whatever you want. Um, but who knows? You might learn a little bit um, that you didn't already know. So I think this time will be worthwhile. For those of you who aren't already experts in the array of uh, views that fall under the category of eschatology and the various reasons people hold to those views, then I would encourage you to stick around uh, because this is going to be something of an introductory lesson in the topic of eschatology and preterism specifically. So let me go ahead and dive right in. Um, as uh, the word that I've used a couple of times now is eschatology, um, or I've used eschatological, but that's a, uh, a variation of eschatology. And eschat eschatology comes from the Greek word eschatos, uh, which means last. Alan Cairns in the Dictionary of Theological Terms uh, defines eschatology as the doctrine of last things, or the part of systematic theology that deals with last things. Now, there are at least two different um, uh, subcategories of eschatology that you're going to encounter in the uh, in the various debates around eschatology within Christianity. One of those two subcategories is called individual eschatology. As Millard Erickson explains in the Concise Dictionary of Christian Theology, individual eschatology is the study of future events with respect to individuals. Uh, so in particular, we're talking about the study of their death, inter the intermediate state, which is the period of time between death and resurrection, and resurrection. Um, by contrast, the other subcategory of eschatology is known as general eschatology. And Louis Burkhoff, in his Systematic Theology, explains that general eschatology covers such topics as the return of Jesus Christ and the end of the world, the last judgment, the consummation of the kingdom, and the final condition of both the pious and the wicked. Now, this is ancillary, it's not important, but the reason I didn't bold there the final condition of both the pious and the wicked in, in the slide that I'm putting up on the screen um, is because I think that the uh, the topic of the final condition of both the saved and the lost really could be covered in either individual or general eschatology, right? It's sort of the term. It, it sort of depends on whether you're talking about what the fate of any given individual is going to be, or what, or you're talking about the collective fate of the two subcategories of humankind, saved and lost, right? So it depends. But anyway, this uh, this part of eschatology, general eschatology, is the, um, is, is the aspect of eschatology that we're going to be looking at today. Now, there are at least two taxonomies, if you will, two ways of categorizing different eschatological views within the area of general eschatology. One of them, and, and the one that's probably more familiar, at least um, to many lay Christians, I would say, are the are tax, a taxonomy based on, or, or a taxonomy of views that, that have to do with when Christ will return in relation to, or relative to, the thousand years of the book of Revelation. Um, so here we're talking talking about premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Now, what thousand years am I talking about? I'm talking about the thousand years that is mentioned a few times in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, so, for example, in verses 2 and 4 to 5, we see, we read, an angel seized a dragon and bound him for a thousand years, and then the martyrs came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, but the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Um, you see, this this thousand years within the book of Revelation is the uh, crux of a debate between three basic millennial views. One is premillennialism. This is the view that is probably most common in American Christianity, uh, especially amongst um, the laity, right, the, the average Joe in the pews. 
And according to premillennialism, Christ is going to return and uh, at the beginning of that thousand years and reign on earth for those thousand years. And then after those thousand years, the rest of the dead will be raised and then they'll be sent to either eternal bliss or eternal damnation. And within premillennialism, you have historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. I'm not gonna get into that in this episode. And within, I think, dispens well, uh, this might be true of both forms of premillennialism, but at least within dispensational premillennial, dispensational premillennialism, um, there's a, a, another sort of sub-categorization that, you're, that you may be familiar with, um, the debate between pre-wrath, mid-wrath, and, or sorry, pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib uh, rapture views, right? Those are all dispensational premillennial views. So you can see that this one category of premillennialism itself has two subcategories, and then under at least one of those, you still have, you have another three subcategories. So there's, this is a broad category I'm talking about here. I'm, I'm not um, trying to narrow it down to every precise possible variation there might be. Uh, but um, in addition to premillennialism, you also have a number of Christians who teach postmillennialism. Um, now, historically, postmillennialism uh, has said that there will be a thousand years of worldwide Christianity, something like 95% uh, of the globe will be Christianized, the world's governments will be uh, Christianized, you know, and, and they'll lead the people in, in a righteous Christian fashion. And then after these thousand years, then Christ returns. So you can see why it's called postmillennialism, because Christ returns after the thousand years. Now, I say historically, um, postmillennialists think that there will be a thousand years precisely of worldwide Christianity and then Christ will return. Um, but I think most modern uh, postmillennialists would, would say that that thousand years in the book of Revelation is a symbol for an indefinite period of time um, toward by the end of which we're, uh, the, the church will have um, Christianized virtually the whole globe. It won't be a little literal thousand years, but there will be a long period of time during which the church has Christianized the world and then Christ will return. So either of those views would fall under this category of post-millennialism. But then there's my view, um, which means it's the right view, I'm kidding, um, which is amillennialism. And the reason why, unlike premillennialism and postmillennialism, the reason why this is called amillennialism is because it denies that there's a literal thousand years at all. Um, and for that reason, we have to be careful not to misrepresent postmillennialists, post because many of them today would also deny that there's a literal thousand years. But nevertheless, uh, we amillennialists contend that the millennium, the thousand years of the book of Revelation symbolizes this current present age, the church age that we're in right now, during which Christ reigns in heaven. And we amillennialists don't have any sort of expectation that the church will experience global, you know, Christianization of the world's governments um, during that time. Uh, we don't, we, we, I think we would say we have very little to no expectation of what's going to happen um, in, the, in the time leading up to the return of Christ. We just know, or think we know, uh, that Christ's return will be at the end of that thousand, of the, of the period of time we're in now, symbolized by those thousand years in the book of Revelation. Um, but it's not that taxon taxonomy that we're going to be looking at today, despite its being probably more familiar to many of you. Instead, we're going to be looking at a different uh, taxonomy of eschatological views, and these views are concerning the timing of most particularly the prophecies in the book of Revelation. And here we're talking about uh, the difference between futurism, historicism, idealism, and preterism. 
Uh, futurism is, uh, as you could probably tell just by the word futurism, uh, with that word future built into it, according to futurism, most of the book of Revelation has not yet been fulfilled and will be in our future. So the bowl judgments and the uh, the Antichrist, the, you know, the number of the B666 and, and all those things um, will be in our future. They'll be fulfilled in our future, according to futurists. Um, less, this is probably, again, like premillennialism, the most common, most popular uh, view within American Christianity today. It's not my view. I don't think it's the biblical view, and we'll get into that. Uh, but it is nevertheless the most popular today, I think. But that wasn't the case during the time of the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant reformers were mostly, or even entirely, historicists. And according to historicism, um, the book of Revelation, its prophecies have been and are being fulfilled through history. So, for example, the, um, many of the Protestant reformers thought that the, um, uh, the, the beast of Revelation was the Roman Catholic Church or the, or the papacy. Um, and they thought that other things in Revelation had been fulfilled even earlier than that. And other things in Revelation were going to be fulfilled in their future. Um, but they're not, unlike futurists, historicists don't think that most of Revelation gets fulfilled all at about the same time. Um, they think it is stretched out. Its fulfillment is stretched out through history. I don't think there are a lot of historicists left today. I could be wrong. Uh, I'm not one of them, and I think the Protestant reformers were um, mistaken in being historicists, and I think that they were a little bit um, uh, biased because of their understandable and justifiable uh, loathing of Roman Catholicism and the Catholic papacy. Uh, had they not been protesting against Rome, I think that they might have not made the connections they did that led them to think that uh, to take a historicist view. But even probably less known than historicism is a third view called idealism. And according to idealism, the Book of Revelation is not fulfilled in specific historic events, but rather it's fulfilled in sort of recurring or um, perennial spiritual themes like the battle between good and evil, the battle between God and Satan, those kinds of things. Um, so, so there aren't specific historical events that fulfill the prophecies in Revelation, according to idealism. Um, and I actually think that although idealism is probably less well known, I, I suspect that there are more idealists today than historicists, but I could be wrong about that. In any event, I don't hold to any one of these three views, and the focus of our, uh, our Bible study today will not be any of these three views, but rather this fourth and final view within this taxonomy, which is known as preterism. Preterism comes from a, a root, uh, an English word root, um, that, that is also the basis of the word preterite and, uh, and some other words, uh, which means, and, and the, this root means past. And according to preterism, most of the book of Revelation, not all, but most of the book of Revelation was fulfilled around 70 CE or 70 AD, however you want to call it, uh, when the Roman armies sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the Jerusalem temple. But preterism isn't only a view of the book of Revelation. It, it's, also, um, it, it's also a view that, that 
uh, that thinks that other prophecies outside of the book of Revelation, typically thought to await fulfillment in our future, were also fulfilled in our past. So, for example, in John Frame's Systematic Theology, he explains that preterism says that many prophecies of Jesus' coming were fulfilled in AD 70, uh, and he includes in that the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, um, which he says is at least partly about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So, Preterism, although it most accurately is refers to a view of the book of Revelation uh, uh, and, and when its prophecies will be fulfilled, it's also a take on other prophecies outside of the book of Revelation um, that sees those prophecies that have, as having been fulfilled in our past rather than in our future, unlike what most uh, lay Christians, at least in America today, believe. Uh, and this is going to be the focus of our study today, the, the Olivet Discourse and whether or not it teaches preterism. Um, but before I get into that, I want to make a real important distinction here, and I want to urge those of you who are fellow Christians and fellow Protestants, uh, fellow preterists even, but, but not only preterists, if you're a futurist, if you're a premillennialist, whatever, I want to urge you to do something with me. Um, if you choose not to, that's okay. Um, at the very least, this will help you to understand the difference between two views that, that are unfortunately lumped together under the, the term preterism, at the very least you'll be able to see how they're distinguished from one another. But I want to urge you to do something, and I'll get to that in a moment. So as I said, according to preterism, most biblical prophecies have been fulfilled, but not all of them. But there is a small but growing and very vocal group of professing Christians. I would say that there are not Christians, uh, at least as a general rule of thumb. Um, I think that all sorts of people could be wrong about things and be saved. But as a general rule, I think that this view I'm about to mention is uh, heretical and, and, and opposed to Christianity. And as such, anybody who truly embraces it and uh, and, and fights it for it in, and fights against um, orthodoxy, I think is likely not a Christian. And this this very small but growing and vocal group I'm talking about um, are what I call hyper-preterists. According to hyper-preterism, all biblical prophecies have been fulfilled. All of them. All the ones from the book of Revelation, all the ones from the Olivet Discourse, everything from Daniel, everything from Ezekiel and Isaiah, everything. There is not a single prophecy in Scripture that awaits fulfillment in our future. They were all fulfilled by the time of 70 AD. Now, there, uh, there are some really important differences, though, besides just the fact that preterists say most biblical prophecies have been fulfilled and hyper-preterists say all biblical prophecies have been fulfilled. There are some other important differences. We preterists have um, forebears, preterist forebears, all throughout church history, um, all the way to, you know, stretching into the um, early era, the early centuries of the, of the Christian church, there have been people who have taken a preterist understanding of several texts in Scripture. Not claiming that it was the dominant view at any particular point in time. In fact, it seems as if the earliest views were uh, known as Chiliists. Um, they, they were most like premillennialists. But there were uh, other views, including preterism, as far back, in, as I said, in church history to uh, as those early centuries of the church. Hyperpreterism, on the other hand, is a novelty that was invented in the 19th century. Uh, so you won't, if I'm not mistaken anyway, it certainly doesn't go back uh, beyond, it, 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 it's not found until well after the Protestant Reformation, let's put it that way. Um, so it's a historical novelty, unlike preterism. But even more importantly than that, we preterists affirm all of the essentials of the faith, including the future bodily resurrection of the dead, but also the future return of Christ, uh, the, the future consummation of all things, um, and a host of other things. 
Hyperpederists, however, deny several essentials of the Christian faith, including the future bodily resurrection of the dead. Um, and they affirm what are, by all indications, very Gnostic views. Um, so, for example, all three of these things I'm about to show you now, my debate opponent, who is a hyperpreterist um, that I mentioned in the very first episode of The Apologetics, uh, agreed th or affirmed that according to uh, hyperpreterism, all, th all three of these things are true. Firstly, that bodies are superfluous to human being. So, you know, we the, the Christian church has from the beginning believed that um, that he, true human being is experienced in the unity of both body and soul. Um, whereas, according to the hyperpreterists, bodies are superfluous to human being. And indeed, when we die, we never get it. We are never resurrected physically. We just go immediately and without a body to heaven and remain there forever. They also believe that Christ no longer has a physical body and never will. So very much like Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, hyperpreterists believe that uh, after Christ ascended to heaven, he got rid of his body and he doesn't have a physical body anymore. Um, and that is, uh, that is definitely a heresy, at least according to the ecumenical councils, which affirmed that Christ has both a body and soul. And thirdly, the hyperpreterists believe that the physical world will forever be riddled with evil, pain, disease, and death. These things will never come to an end according to hyperpreterists. Um, so for these reasons and because of the essentials that hyperpreterism denies, preterism is a Christian take on biblical eschatology, but hyperpreterism is not Christian. And it's for that reason that it should not be called full preterism. You see, and this is this is now where I'm urging you people that are watching this right now, even whether you're a preterist or not, I want to urge you to stop using the partial versus full preterism distinction to refer to these two views, um, but rather to use the terms preterism versus hyperpreterism, because when we when we talk about um, forms of a particular view, like partial and full or whatever, we're typically talking about views that can, uh, views that exist aside one another within Christianity. Um, but we will very often use, or maybe not very often, but we sometimes use the word hyper, or the prefix hyper, to indicate that a view is sort of based on something, a, a Christian view, but takes it to an unorthodox hyper, uh, heretical extreme. So for example, I'm a Calvinist, and um, uh, there are also people who are called hyper-Calvinists. They wouldn't accept that label for themselves, but the church has, has called them hyper-Calvinists because they take what is a, or, well, at least in the eyes of us Calvinists, a, a legitimate Christian view, namely Calvinism, and then take it to an unbiblical, unjustifiable, heretical extreme. In the case of hyper-Calvinists, um, they, they say you shouldn't even evangelize to people unless you have reason to believe beforehand that the Spirit is at work within them, regenerating their hearts. Um, so, so it requires uh, disobeying Christ's command to go into the world and make disciples of all nations, because you can't go make a disciple of anybody, you can't go convert somebody until you know, or at least think you know, that the Holy Spirit is at work within them and that they're one of the elect. So 
we, we attach the prefix, we don't call this partial versus full Calvinism because only one of those two views is Christian. We distinguish between Calvinism and hyper-Calvinism because hyper-Calvinism takes sort of a, a, a root that is, that is good and healthy within Christianity, namely Calvinism, and then takes it to a, a heretical extreme. And likewise, hyper-preterism uh, hyper takes something that is at its core something good and something Christian and something acceptable within the pale of orthodoxy, namely that most Biblical prophecies were fulfilled in our past, but that the essential one, the, the ones that define Christian eschatology, the, the future return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and so forth, those things await fulfillment in our future. But hyperpederism takes that to an extreme that renders it unorthodox and heretical uh, by saying everything's been fulfilled and that there will be no resurrection, physical resurrection of the dead, and that Christ no longer has a body, and so on and so forth. So I would really humbly request uh, if, if you're um, somebody that has been accustomed to using the partial and full uh, distinction between uh, between preterist views I would encourage you to instead simply say preterism versus hyperpreterism um, I think that that will clear up confusion and will rightly identify the the the, the 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 fundamental difference between these two views which is that one is Christian and one is not now, I mentioned a moment ago that we're going to be looking specifically at the Olivet Discourse. Um, J. Richard Middleton in his book, The New Heaven, A New Heaven and a New Earth, explains that the Olivet Discourse, which you can find in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, is referred to as the Olivet Discourse because it took place on the Mount of Olives. Um, and he points you to Matt, uh, Matthew 24, 3 and Mark 13, 3. Uh, somebody says, funny how the question you are asking is already answered simply by knowing what this channel is about. I'm sorry, Truth96130, I don't know what your, your point is there, I'm sorry. Um, but anyway, what J. Richard Middleton is pointing to here are these two texts where the, the Jesus' discourse is introduced by saying Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. So it's called the Olivet Discourse. And this is a, um, a discourse in which Christ prophesies, uh, prophesies a number of events that futurists, and again, this is most Christians in America today, think await fulfillment in our future. So, for example, Matthew 24, 14 says this God, Jesus predicts that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And you've probably heard a number of you know, pastors and, and other teachers saying that um, the gospel has gone into most of the world, but there are still some unreached areas. And once we get those, you know, once we evangelize those areas, then Christ is going to return. And indeed, that's what Craig Keener says, a very respected scholar in his commentary on Matthew. He says, we must complete the commission of discipling all nations. The Lord will not return until he has found a generation of servants devoted enough to fulfill the worldwide missions task. So here's one example of one of the prophecies in Jesus's Olivet Discourse that futurists think await, is awaiting fulfillment in our future. Another example is the very next verse, Matthew 24, 15, uh, where Jesus says, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, and then he goes on to say something. And uh, futurists typically see this as a reference to something that will befall a future rebuilt third temple. So, for example, Hal M. Holler Jr. in his uh, in the Grace New Testament commentary says the abomination of desolation refers to the Antichrist's causing the Jewish sacrifices in a future rebuilt temple to cease by setting up an image of the beast to be worshipped in a future rebuilt uh, temple. 
So you can see there that uh, this this abomination of desolation is thought to be a reference to some sort of um, statue erected in the middle of the future rebuilt Jewish temple. All right. Uh, Truth96130 just responded to me, says, if the channel believes in Jesus's future return, then naturally any conclusions given will be in favor of Jesus returning in the future. Okay. All right. And, and Dan, my friend Dan Breeden says, sounds just like the second century Gnostics who believe that matter was evil. The hyperpreterist idea being mostly similar. That's exactly right. That's going back to that slide I showed earlier. Hyperpreterism is just modern Gnosticism. Uh, one more example of prophecies in in Jesus's Olivet Discourse that futurists believe await fulfillment in our future is in verse 29 of Matthew 24. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. You know, this is the kind of thing that features in movies like The Omen and, and you know, um, it, it's super scandalous or super uh, uh, supernatural type stuff that appears in movies that are about the Antichrist and stuff like that. It's very popular. And Robert Gundry in his commentary on the New Testament says that these are celestial disasters that will feature things like a darkening of our primary luminaries, the sun and the moon, as well as a shower of meteorites. So you can see these are just three examples of a number of things in Jesus's discourse that futurists are convinced await fulfillment in our future. But I'm going to be arguing that, in fact, the entirety of Jesus's Olivet Discourse was fulfilled, or at least the bulk of it, was fulfilled in the first century, in our past. I think it's. I think the Olivet Discourse is a um, warrants a preterist interpretation, calls for a preterist interpretation rather than a futurist one. And the primary, but not exclusive, uh, the primary reason why I think so is because what of Je because of what Jesus says in Matthew twenty four thirty four. After all three of those things that I mentioned before, and a number of other things, he says, "Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until." all these things take place. And it's not, he doesn't just say that in, in Matthew's account of, excuse me, sorry. He doesn't just say that in Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse. He also says it in Mark's and Luke's. Um, now, this sounds very much like it should settle the debate. Right On the surface of it, it, sure, it certainly sounds as if Jesus is saying that the generation of his contemporaries won't entirely die away. There will be some of them left when these things finally take place. But futurists, uh, because of the reasons I mentioned before, the things that they think await fulfillment in our future, they, they have to deny that what, that's what Jesus is saying here. And so they typically uh, will turn to an explanation like this. In the Schofield Reference Bible, Schofield says that the word here translated generation is the Greek word genea, um, the primary definition of which, he says, is race, kind, family, stock, or breed. And then he claims that this is what the lexicons support. And indeed, this is even today, I think, what many futurists would, would claim. Not all of them. There are other explanations of this verse, but as we'll see, um, they fall victim to the same problems that this interpretation falls victim to. Um, here are three different lexicons, uh, but okay, let me back up a second. This definition that Schofield claims is the primary, primary definition of Genea is actually the definition of Genos. Um, DBL, the Dictionary of Biblical Languages, calls it kind, or defines genos as kind, a category, class, or genus. Uh, Liddell Scott and Jones, I think it is, the LSJ lexicon, defines it as race, stock, or kin. And BDAG, Bauer, uh, Bauer Donker, uh, sorry, Bauer Driver, 
whatever, BDAG, <laughs> that lexicon, uh, whose, whose names I can't, rem can't ever remember, defines it as entities united by a common trait, like class or kind. So you can see that this definition that Schofield is offering is actually not the, it's, it's the definition of genos, not genea. Um, and you can see it in use in the New Testament in precisely that way. In Mark 9, 29, Jesus says, this kind of evil spirit cannot be driven out but by prayer, and kind there is genos. Um, in Acts 7, 19, Pharaoh is said to have dealt shrewdly with with our race, the Jewish race, there's Genos again. And Peter um, right, tells his readers that you are a chosen race, Genos, using the Old Testament language describing Israel as a chosen race. Um, so you can see Genos is the very, it, it's, it has the very definition that Schofield is claiming the word translated generation does in Matthew 24, 34. Now it is true that some lexicons include race or kind, class, that kind of thing, as a definition of Ganea. Uh, in fact, BDAG and L the Lunita lexicon both do so. But the only example that they offer of where Ganea means class, kind, or race is in Luke 16.8. And I want to take a look at that for a moment because I think what we'll see is that there's no reason for thinking that that is in fact what the word means in Luke 16.8. Here's the English Standard Version translation of Luke 16.8. It says, The sons of this world, Jesus is speaking here, The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation, Ganea, than the sons of light. Now, before you assume that the lexicons I just mentioned are right, and that the word here, translated generation, in fact means class or kind or something like that. Consider that um, the, the word translated world earlier in this verse is the word ion, which means age or epoch or era, that kind of thing. And so you see, for example, um, Luke, uh, the NASB translate the same verse, the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. So you can see that the NASB um, is favoring the class or kind uh, translation of Ganea, but they rightly translate Ion age rather than world, right? So Jesus is talking about the people then alive, right? Um, now, the word Ganea is rightly translated as their contemporaries, or contemporaries by the New English translation, the NET. It says, but, but it gets the other one wrong about the, the world, right? So it translates the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their contemporaries than the people of light. But that's not quite right either. Nevertheless, you can see that um, one is talking about an age, the other word is talking about a, a, a contemporaries living during that age, and that's why the NRSV is a really good translation of this. The children of this age, I own, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation, Ganea, than are the children of light. You see, Jesus is saying the people of then alive, the Jewish people then alive, are more shrewd in dealing with the rest of the people then alive, their own generation, then are the children of light. It's There's no reason for thinking that Ganea here means kind or class or something like that. It means the, the, uh, the, the people that are all alive in the age about which Jesus is speaking, namely this age, the one that he's talking about right then and there. So the only example offered by BDAG and Lunita and other lexicons where, for where in the New Testament Ganea means kind or class fails to hold up under scrutiny as an example of such a use of the word. 
Rather, um, BDAG rightly offers as a second definition, but it really should be the first, the sum total of those born at the same time, generation, contemporaries. And unlike the first definition, class or kind, for which it offers only one example, and we've already seen that example doesn't really hold up under scrutiny, by contrast, it offers a couple dozen examples of places in the New Testament where Ginea means generation, including the very text we're looking at. So it seems, I, right off the bat, it seems to me that there's a much, uh, it's much likelier that the word Ginea here in Matthew 24, 34 means generation, uh, contemporaries alive at that time, rather than a class or kind. Um, but let me offer three reasons for, for additional reasons beside just the the, um, the wealth of places in the New Testament where Ganea means generation. Let me offer three additional reasons for thinking that that's the proper uh, definition of the word here. Firstly, this generation that Jesus mentions in Matthew twenty four thirty four um, has already been referred to by Jesus and. Jesus is referring to his apostate Jewish contemporaries. So if we go back to the end of Matthew 23, the previous chapter in Matthew, Jesus is, is pronouncing woe upon the scribes and Pharisees, the apostate Jews uh, to whom he's speaking. And he says, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from Abel to Zechariah. All these things will come upon this generation. Exact same phrase, uh, Ganea and the uh, near demonstrative hutas, meaning this, as we see in Revela or the next chapter, Matthew 24, 34. So Jesus is um, saying, you present apostate Jews are going to persecute and kill people I send you, and that is so that upon you, present Jewish apostates, will fall, will come upon the blood of all of the prophets from the past. So he's talking about his present uh, Jewish apostate contemporaries, not, not a particular kind of person. He's not saying that all of the blood of the prophets are going to fall upon this particular kind of person all throughout time any more than he was saying he's going to send to people a thousand years from then um, uh, people that they're going to be flogged in synagogues and so forth. So he's talking about the, the, the generation of people alive right then and there. And that's why he goes on to say in the very next verse, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children, but you were not willing. Your house is left to you desolate. And here he's um, alluding to language in the book of Jeremiah, where Yahweh says he's leaving the temple desolate. So this is all about the, the then alive generation of apostate Jews. And as I said, at, in verse 37, I think it is, of Matthew 23, the previous chapter, he refers to that as this generation, the same exact phrase that he uses in Matthew 24, 34. So that's one reason for thinking um, uh, that Ganea and Matthew 24, 34 refers to the generation of people alive at, in Jesus's time. A second reason is because this whole discourse is spurred be, when Jesus begins answering a question about when the temple then standing would be destroyed. So if we look at the very beginning of Matthew 24, we're now moving out of 23, which we just looked at, and we're now moving into Matthew 24, which is the Olivet Discourse. And it begins, uh, Matthew records the following, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. 
notice he's not talking about any any temple at any point in time through history, but the temple then standing, the one that was there that had buildings that Jesus uh, Jesus's disciples could point Jesus to, you know, um, and then it goes on to say, but Jesus answered them, you see all these, do you not? These buildings that you just pointed me to? The buildings of the temple then standing? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So he's saying there's going to come a point in time where this temple is no more. It's completely demolished. Um, and then we say, and then Matthew records that as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him saying, tell us, when will these things be? What things? The things Jesus has just said, the tearing down of the temple. But they, they go on to say, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, and thus begins the Olivet Discourse. So you can see that Jesus is answering a question that the disciples are asking about the temple then standing, and when it would be destroyed. Now, it looks to some futurists as if Jesus, or as if Jesus' disciples are asking multiple uh, questions here, um, multiple disconnected questions, or at least um, disconnected in Jesus' answer to them at the very least. Not just when will these things be, but also what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And so futurists think that Jesus, the disciples are asking at least two distinct questions. One, uh, when will the temple be destroyed? And then two, when is, are you going to come? What are the signs of your coming, your return, your second advent? Um, but that's not the case. If you look at the parallel pl uh, passages in Mark and Luke, where the Olivet Discourse is recorded, you can see that the, the, what Matthew records as the question, what will be the sign of your coming, Mark and Luke record the same question, but in different words. What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So you see, the, the, the disciples are, are asking Jesus one question. Ultimately, when will these things be the destruction of the temple and what will be the sign when the temple is about to be destroyed? And so that raises the question then, why did in Matthew, why does Matthew record the disciples asking Jesus a, um, a pair about his coming in association with the temple's destruction? It's important to first, to, to when, we, when, we under, when we undertake an exegesis of this text, we first have to recognize, before we start imagining our own understandings of coming, second coming, and so forth, into the text, we first have to realize that Jesus' disciples didn't know he was going to go anywhere at, at, by this point in the narrative. So in Matthew 16, for example, Jesus began to show that he must be killed, but Peter began to rebuke him, saying, this shall never happen to you. And it's not just in Matthew, it's in the other Gospels too. In Mark 9, 9 and 10, Jesus says, Tell no one until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they were questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They were clueless. They had no idea. Of course, Jesus was as plain as day, but they couldn't countenance the possibility that the Messiah would die and go anywhere. We see the same thing in Matthew. Uh, oh, I repeated that slide. Oh, this is actually in Luke, um, and I have the wrong citation there, so I apologize. But um, but in Luke, somewhere, I've lost the citation, uh, it says, They will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. And the disciples understood none of these. They did not grasp what was said. And then same thing in John 16, 16 to 18. You will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. And the disciples respond, We do not know what he is talking about. 
So the disciples didn't know Jesus was going anywhere. So the question is, why did they associate the temple's destruction on the one hand with Jesus' coming on the other? They couldn't have imagined a second coming because they didn't understand him to be going anywhere in the first place. So there must be something else in mind when they talk about Jesus' coming. And indeed, the coming they had in mind was not Jesus' return, his second coming, his second advent. They had in mind a different kind of coming. You see, uh, in, if you look, if you read on in Matthew uh, 24 in the Olivet Discourse, in verses 27 and 30, you read this. Jesus says, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And this is really the, the key to understanding what coming the disciples are asking about. Jesus, Jesus will go on in two chapters later uh, in Matthew 26, 64, and 65 to say to the high priest, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. There's that coming on the clouds of heaven again, right? That we saw in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. And so the high priest tears his robes and says, he has uttered blasphemy. What does Jesus saying he's going, they're going to see him coming on the clouds of heaven. What does that have to do with blasphemy? Why would they uh, say he's uttered blasphemy? Well, it's because of, it's because Jesus is alluding to or outright quoting from a couple of Old Testament texts that are really critical. Psalm 110 verses 1 and 5 to 6 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That sit at my right hand is what is talked about here in Matthew 26 when Jesus says, You'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The seated at the right hand is coming from Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then verses 5 and 6 of that psalm, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. So this connection of Jesus sitting at the, at the right hand of Yahweh is his enthronement and the start of his, uh, of his judging the nations, beginning with Israel. Um, it's also this language of coming on the clouds. It comes from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Um, with the clouds of heaven, Daniel says, there came one like a son of man. There's that son of man language. And he came to the ancient of days, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. So the reason um, that the uh, that the uh, priest tore his robes and said this was was um, blasphemy is because Jesus was self-identifying as the messianic divine figure who would rule over the nations from that Psalm 110 and, and Daniel 7. Um, and this coming on clouds language elsewhere refers clearly to judgment as well. So Isaiah 19, 1 and 16, behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt in that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. Um, so this is this coming on the clouds is judgment language. Same thing in Jeremiah 7, 12 to 14. Now it is I who speak in judgment upon them. Behold, he comes up like clouds. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. So coming up like clouds is, is a warning that judgment is coming upon Jerusalem. And so Jeremiah pleads with his hearers, wash your heart from evil so that you may be saved. So in her uh, commentary on Matthew 24 called It's Not the End of the World, Dee Warren rightly puts it this way. Why did Jesus' pronouncement of judgment upon the temple prompt the disciples to ask of his coming? 
Again, they didn't know he was going to go anywhere, so they couldn't have been asking about his second coming. They had, instead, something else in mind, Didi goes on to explain, because they understood such an event to be the definitive establishment of the messianic kingdom and of Christ's acting as messianic judge. That is why the disciples are asking about the temple's destruction and Jesus' coming, because they associated with them, them, they understood them to be a single um, event, the onset of Christ's uh, judgment as, as, as ruler of his kingdom, having been enthroned there after his ascension. A third reason for uh, understanding Gnea to, ref- to, to mean this, the present generation of Jesus' contemporaries is because in Luke's interpretation of Jesus' discourse, Jesus explicitly warns of Jerusalem's impending judgment. So in Matthew and, and Mark, um, in, well, it's in Ma- the, the text I have up on the screen is from Matthew, but you can see virtually the same thing in Mark. Uh, in Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16, Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, and then Matthew says, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And again, this is virtually identical to Mark's um, rendering of Jesus's words here in the discourse. But Luke's is decidedly different. Luke puts it, uh, well, before I get to Luke, um, D.A. Carson and G.K. Beale, in their excellent volume, um, The Commentary on the New Testament, Use of the Old Testament, they put it this way. This, the abomination of desolation, clearly alludes to the horror prophesied in Daniel 9.27, which was fulfilled in the desecration of the temple sanctuary by Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid ruler who ransacked the capital city. This is a, a series of events that you can read about in the um, book of Mac- the books of Maccabees. Um, and I'm not suggesting that those are inspired scripture or anything, but just that the uh, the the timing of or you read any Old Testament scholar and they're gonna they're gonna say that the the abomination of desolation and a lot of the things that Daniel talks about in his prophecy there are referring to what would happen a few hundred years later when uh, Antiochus Epiphanes sacked the uh, sacked Jerusalem and, and um, defiled the temple, and the writers of Maccabees thought that was exactly what happened um, in when Antiochus Epiphanes did that. So so uh, Jesus is alluding to that abomination of desolation. And as R.T. France explains, that let the reader understand part that Jesus, uh, that Matthew puts in parentheses, well, there weren't parentheses, but our English text puts it in parentheses. R.T. France explains that that means the reader is, is presumably to identify something which is in recognizable continuity with the devastating pollution set up by Antiochus. But just what form it will take is left to the imagination. Now, this is true if all we're looking at is Matthew. But this is why I said Luke's rendition of Jesus' words is decidedly different, because Luke does not leave it to the imagination. Um, He makes it very explicit. He says in Luke 21, 20 to 21, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies... Then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Um, Consider that Luke is the one author of scripture that many Christians think was a Gentile. Um, All the other authors of scripture were Jews. And some Christians actually think Luke was a Jew as well. That's something I might look into and do an episode on at some point in the future. But either way, scholars generally agree that at least in some places in his gospel, Luke is, in t- is, is wording things in a way to make clear to Gentile readers what only Jewish readers would have understood. 
And this is one of them. Matthew and Mark let the Jewish reader familiar with the book of Daniel and and with the events uh, surrounding Antiochus Epiphanes, lets them, the reader, understand, figure out for themselves what the abomination of desolation is a reference to. But Luke clarifies and interprets for his what he perceives to be largely Gentile readership by saying this abomination of desolation that Matthew and Mark have Jesus talking about is the surrounding of Jerusalem by armies. Um, now, if you doubt that uh, this is indeed the, the very thing that Jesus was talking about when he talks about the abomination of desolation, just walk through the parallel uh, discourses, the parallel renditions of their discourses, and you'll see that the uh, abomination of desolation falls at exactly the same place in the discourse as, the, as Luke has Jesus saying when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. So we see that in both Matthew and Luke, Jesus warns about wars and earthquakes and famines. And then in both Matthew and Luke, Jesus warns that evangelists that he sends out are going to be persecuted and killed. And then Matthew talks about the abomination of desolation, but Luke says when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and then they the two accounts converge again. Matthew and Luke both have Jesus warning that people need to flee immediately when they see this happening. Both Matthew and Luke have Jesus uh, saying, alas, for pregnant women because of how hard it's going to be for them to travel. Both Matthew and Luke have Jesus then talking about great tribulation or great distress. And then both of them have Jesus talking about celestial signs. And then Matthew and Luke both have Jesus talking about the Son of Man coming. So you can see that the the discourse is exactly the same. They're just wording things differently. They're 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 paraphrasing Jesus's uh, discourse differently. And where Matthew and Mark talk about the abomination of just of desolation, Luke interprets that for his Gentile readers, saying, "When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that the time is near." Uh, and so N.T. Wright says, says it nicely in his commentary on Matthew for Everyone, part two. He says, look out, he, he paraphrases Jesus' words this way, look out for the pagan invasion that will end up placing blasphemous objects in the temple itself. That's what Jesus is essentially warning. And indeed, Wright observes that Roman legions did end up surrounding the temple and eventually placed their blasphemous standards there. Standards are, are like the flags, the, the tall flags rather than, you know, little flags. But... Um, so we can see that there are these three, among other, good reasons for concluding that Gnea in Matthew 24, 34 means generation, the generation of Jesus' contemporaries. Firstly, he's already identified this generation as his apostate Jewish contemporaries upon whom he's pronouncing judgment. Second, he's answering a question about when the temple then standing would be destroyed, with which Jesus' disciples understood to be uh, Jesus coming as judge and ruler. And thirdly, in Luke's interpretation of Jesus' course, Jesus is warning of Jerusalem's judgment explicitly. But what do we do then about a couple of the passages in the discourse that sound like they're about things that have not yet happened? What do we do about Matthew 24, 14, when Jesus says this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come? Remember earlier we looked at Craig Keener, the, the respected and rightfully so scholar who, who understood this to mean that we modern Christians need to evangelize the whole world? Uh, what are we supposed to make of this? <laughs> I'm sorry, but this already happened. I know it might surprise you, but it's right there in the Bible. In Colossians 1, 5 and 6, Paul writes, The gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. And Paul also says in Romans 1.8, your faith is proclaimed in all the world. 
Now we can talk about why Paul is is uh, what what Paul is talking about, why he uses the language he does. Firstly, he's probably he's talking about the known world, not the globe. He's talking about the um, the populated world, the inhabited world. So he's talking about humankind as he knew it, not the whole globe. Um, but also, as Dee Dee Warren explains in her commentary, the, the um, Jews were, in, in their writing of scripture and in their writing in the way that Paul is writing here, were very colorful and, and um, perfectly comfortable with hyperbole and exaggeration. Um, however you understand it, whatever you, or however you want to make sense of what Paul is saying in Colossians 1 and Romans 1, nevertheless, what Jesus predicted about the gospel being proclaimed to the whole world seems to have been fulfilled. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we don't need to evangelize now. There are uh, there are parts of the world that, that are inhabited now that Paul didn't know were then that still need to be evangelized. All I'm saying is that there's, uh, there's no reason for thinking that what Jesus says in Matthew 24 about the gospel being proclaimed throughout the whole world, there's no reason for thinking that that is yet to be fulfilled. But what about those celestial signs that we read about in Matthew 24, 29? The sun will be darkened and the moon will, give it, will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Surely this hasn't happened. When has the sun turned dark? When has the moon gone dark? Obviously the stars haven't fallen from heaven, right? Au contraire. Um, in the book of Judges, toward the end of chapter 4 and going into chapter 5, Israel is recorded as having destroyed the king of Canaan. And then Deborah sings a song. So Deborah is about to sing a song celebrating the victory that Israel has just accomplished. And look at what she sings. The kings came, they fought. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. You see, the, the, heaven, the, the stars fighting from heaven is... Uh, cosmic celestial language that symbolizes the fighting that the kings of Israel and her enemies um, had just done. Um, Isaiah 13, 9 and 10, pronouncing judgment upon Babylon in the past, our past, says the day of the Lord comes to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens will not give their light, the sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. You see, this, this language about cosmic and celestial darkening is about rulers um, and kingdoms falling, right? Populations being killed. It's not about actual things up in the sky happening. Um, and there are uh, many other examples of this kind of language as well. And actually, one of the things that Dee Dee Warren points out really helpfully in her commentary is that this we, we do this kind of thing today. Um, take, for example, the, um, the, the from the halls of Montezuma to the halls of Tripoli or whatever. I think it's that song or some other one she mentions in, in American history uses cosmic language like this, but it's celebrating American victories, American battle, victory in American battles. And, and we use um, we use really bizarre language now, it just in normal everyday speech, to refer to mundane things. Um, imagine if a thousand years from now, well after the American pop, you know the, the American civilization has 
evolved into something else. I don't mean biologically evolved. I just mean, you know, over time things change or, or you know, maybe our civilization is destroyed or whatever. But anyway, in, the English language is, is long gone and it's uh, and there are archaeologists a thousand years from now uncovering books and, and watching movies or whatever that they found from the 21st century. And, and imagine they read something or they watch somebody saying in a show, it's raining cats and dogs. Now, if the futurist insistence that this text in the Olivet Discourse about these celestial signs, if their insistence that that has got to be taken literally were to hold up under scrutiny, then they'd have to say the same thing about uh, somebody, like I said, an archaeologist a thousand years from now who uncovers 21st century material in which it said it's raining cats and dogs. They, uh, presumably, they would understand that to mean that we 21st century people experienced very bizarre weather in which uh, canines and felines fall from the sky, right? But of course, we're not stupid. <laughs> we know that the it's raining cats and dogs is an idiom. Um, that, that It sounds weird and bizarre, but it's just referring to something ordinary. Uh, similarly, if I say, I'm going to punch your lights out, Nobody thinks that I'm saying you've got a light bulb over your head that's on and I'm going to hit it so that it turns off, right? No, I, it's, it, I'm going to knock you unconscious, unconscious is what I'm saying. So we, we use idioms today too, and the Jewish people were very, uh, very similar in that regard. And this kind of cosmic darkening, uh, cosmic conflagration language that we read about in such texts is just the language, that the idioms that they use to describe rulers and kingdoms and peoples being judged and falling. So there's no reason for taking this uh, language literally in the discourse, in the Olivet Discourse, and, and thinking that there must be a time in our future when the sun will literally turn dark and the moon will not give its light, etc. We need to understand what Jesus is saying in the way that his hearers who were steeped in the Jewish Old Testament would have understood it. And they would not have taken it literally the way that we are so prone to do. Now, up until, so, so I, I want to make something clear. I have not uh, intentionally, I have not gone extremely deep into the Olivet Discourse and addressed every single verse and compared how futurists interpret it with how we preterists interpret it. That's something I may do in a future episode. But all I want to do um, in this, all I've wanted to do in this episode is show you that um, there are some really compelling reasons for thinking that Jesus is uh, predicting a host of things that are going to happen in the first century, not in our future. And if you still think there may be a few verses in the discourse that are really difficult to square with a first century fulfillment, well, just stay tuned to this channel, subscribe to it, and uh, in the future I'll go into more detail in Matthew 24. But this is really just an introduction to uh, a preterist reading of, um, of the Olivet Discourse. All right, and that's all I wanted to do was introduce it. But there was a reason I wanted to introduce it. And that's because, and this is where that marrying is going to happen that I mentioned earlier between theology and apologetics. You see, this, this debate between uh, futurism and preterism is not merely sort of an ivory tower, intellectual, theological debate. It has ramifications uh, here and now, on the ground, in day-to-day -day life. Um, you see, a preterist reading of this text, which I've tried to justify a little bit here today, uh, and, and I really don't think that futurist uh, interpretation can, um, can hold up under scrutiny, um, a preterist understanding of the text silences one big challenge that many skeptics level at the Christian faith. 
What do I mean? Well, Dee Dee Warren explains in her um, commentary on Matthew 24, it's not the end of the world. She writes, by futurizing this passage, one of the strongest proofs for the truth of Christianity is removed and ammunition is given to the skeptics. What ammunition is D.D. Warren talking about? Well, here's Bertrand Russell, a famous atheist who's, who wrote Why I Am Not a Christian. And one of the things that Bertrand Russell writes in this book about why he's not a Christian is, Jesus certainly thought that his second coming would occur in clouds of glory before the death of all the people who were living at that time. Now, just think for a moment. Um, how how is an atheist a skeptic who has this kind of objection to the truth of christianity and to the legitimacy of jesus's claims how is a skeptic like that going to um deal or, or, or react to a futurist who says to him oh you're just misunderstanding. Jesus wasn't talking about the generation of his contemporaries. All the translations are just wrong. It's not generation. It's kind or class. You just, just, you know, nothing but pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right? Or what about the other futurists who, instead of saying that generation really means class or kind, what they really would, what they really say, what they say, some of these other futurists, is that Jesus actually means some future generation is going to um, not pass away before all these things take place. Even though Jesus says this generation, not that generation. And by the way, that generation is used elsewhere in Scripture. In the Septuagint, uh, for example, um, and this is quoted in the book of Hebrews, so you can look it up for yourself. But in the Septuagint, uh, Yahweh is talking about a past generation of Israelites, and he refers to them as that generation. Right, so if you want to talk about a generation in the distant future or distant past, you say that generation, not this generation. So, so how do you think a skeptic who objects to the truth of Christianity and the legitimacy of Jesus' claims, um, how is that kind of skeptic going to um, respond to a futurist who tries to answer their skepticism by, <laughs> excuse me, by denying that Jesus is saying this generation would not pass away before all these things take place? Well, they're going to laugh at them. And they're going to say, this is the kind of gymnastics and you know, um, machinations that you Christians have to have to go through to try to twist the scripture to um, to let these things be in our future, so that Jesus isn't the failed prophet he so clearly is. But what if I'm right? What if preterists are right about Matthew 24, and Jesus uh, actually was not predicting his second advent, his second coming, his return, but rather was predicting judgment upon Jerusalem uh, in the first century, within the lifetime of his contemporaries? Well, now you've got something remarkable. Something truly remarkable. You see, the, the first century Jews would not have imagined that God would possibly let the temple fall, be destroyed by the hands of the pagan Romans. Um, it was the, the temple was unimaginably glorious. People from hiking from, from miles away, from miles away, would see the glittering of the temple covered in gold as it was. Um, it would be blinding if the sun was hitting it at the right angle. This was this was the place where the Jews thought and had and had previously experienced the very presence of God, his Shekinah glory hovering over the altar in the Holy of Holies inside of the temple. No first century Jew would have possibly imagined that within the lifetime of the people then alive, God would permit the pagan Roman armies to invade Jerusalem, sack it, and destroy the temple. Especially given that right then and there was a period of great peace. It's, it's even got a name for it, the Pax Romana, not P-O-X, P-A-X, the, the Roman peace. At this time, 
Rome was experiencing a great deal of peace, at least from the perspective of people in Judea. So there would have been no reason uh, for even for even suspecting that the temple was in danger. And even if there were, there would have been no way a first century Jewish person would have countenanced the possibility that God would have permitted that temple to fall. And yet, Jesus predicts its impending fall in astonishing detail and with remarkable accuracy as history um, would go on to record. There there is no um, more attested event in all of antiquity than the Roman destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It's the most well-attested event in in, in antiquity, I think, if I'm not mistaken. At the very least, it is very, uh, very well attested. There's no doubt that this happened when it happened within the lifetime of Jesus' contemporaries, just as Jesus said it would. In fact, um, Eusebius, the church historian, records that uh, there was a period of... So when, when the Roman armies... Let me go back to something. Remember that what we looked at Luke saying? Um, Luke said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, somebody might look at that and say, well, wait a minute. If Jerusalem's surrounded by armies, how is anybody going to be able to flee? (laughs) Well, it just so happens that Eusebius records that very thing um, being possible. Because, you see, um, the, the Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem... Uh, for a period of time, and then they left Jerusalem briefly, for reasons I can't recall at the moment, and then they came back and they did what they had set out to do. So there was a very brief period of time during which the Roman armies were no longer surrounding Jerusalem, and the church the church historian Eusebius records that during that brief respite, during that brief period of time when, when, when the Roman armies had pulled away from Jerusalem, Christian Jews who had remembered Jesus giving this Olivet Discourse fled to the wilderness and survived uh, the the destruction of the temple when the when the Roman armies returned. Uh, something like two and a half million Jewish people. I mean the Holocaust from you know the 1940s was an enormous slaughter of um, uh, of Jewish people, something like six million Jews, right? That's a lot, but consider that 2,000 years earlier, just about, Um, A third of that, more than a third of that, died when the Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. But which Jews survived, in particular? The Jewish Christians who remembered what Jesus had warned about. When they saw saw the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem, they knew it was time to flee. And when the armies did, in fact, pull away for a brief period of time, they did flee. And they survived the judgment upon Jerusalem in the first century. So Jesus, his prediction, not only is he not a failed prophet, he's an astonishingly accurate prophet. Well, way too accurate, uh, both in terms of detail and in terms of the time during which he said it would happen. Um, way too accurate to be a false prophet or even merely a, a um, an ordinary human being like Nostradamus. Um, this was God incarnate. Um, At the very least, he was the very Messiah that the Old Testament had prophesied about, and he was indeed a true prophet from God. That's astonishing. Far from being a challenge to the legitimacy of Jesus and the truthfulness of Christianity, it's powerful proof of it. And so R.C. Sproul, in his The Last Days According to Jesus, says there's some irony in Bertrand Russell's negative polemic. Because as we've seen, one of the most important proofs 
of Christ's character and of the Bible's divine inspiration is Jesus' astonishingly accurate prediction of the destruction of the temple and of the fall of Jerusalem, prophecies contained in the Olivet Discourse. You see, this is, again, this is a case where theology and apologetics go hand in hand. You see, if you've got bad theology, and if you interpret the Olivet Discourse as referring to things that are going to be fulfilled in our future, you are, you are leaving the Christian faith vulnerable to its critics. And I would say uh, truly vulnerable, not just vulnerable, but it, will, it falls victim to those skeptics' attacks. But if you understand this text rightly, and you have sound theology based on that text, and you understand that Jesus is not predicting his second coming, his second advent, his return, but rather his coming in judgment upon first century uh, Jerusalem, first century apostate Judaism, well, then you have the uh, you have a shield, if you will, not just a shield that defends against the skeptic's claim, but a sword, because now you can put the skeptic on the defensive and say, look, all the evidence is that at the very least, one of the three synoptic gospels was written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and yet it records Jesus having predicted the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD within the lifetime of his contemporaries in astonishing detail. How do you explain that, Mr. Skeptic? So that's so. So I think that's why I think this topic is important. There's so many people, probably some of you watching now, that you don't think eschatology is all that important. It's just something Christians can debate about, and it's it's. Let's focus on more important things. Well, hold on. Here's an example well where eschatology becomes vitally important in our work in apologetics. Now, I want to leave you with one last thing. I want to leave you with three resources that I would recommend that were influential for me when I was first discovering and embracing preterism. Um, there are others from other authors that you can dig into and find yourself, but these are the three that influenced me the most. Uh, and I want to share them with you in case you want to get copies of these for yourselves and, and, and learn more about preterism, not just in um, Matthew 24, although that is uh, where two of these three resources, or one of these three resources is going to focus, but the other two will focus also on preterism in the book of Revelation and elsewhere. Firstly is the book from R.C. Sproul that I just quoted from, The Last Days According to Jesus. Now, if you're not a Calvinist, you might dislike Sproul um, because he is a, uh, was, he's passed away obviously, but he was a um, staunch defender of Calvinism. Um, but he does great work in, in a lot of areas, and, and this is one of them. And I would encourage you to check it out. The Last Days According to Jesus. You can find it on Amazon. Um, in fact, it's it's not just available um, on Kindle, I think, but it's actually, it's actually available for Logos Bible software. Um, so if you go to Logos.com and you search for Sproul The Last Days, you'll find this book there, and you can purchase it and get it into your digital library. Another resource that I found very helpful is another book I've quoted from earlier, written by Dee Dee Warren. That's a pseudonym. Um, she now she, she, she's on the record now publicly as saying that her real name is Karen Ann Harlos. Uh, I think I pronounced that correctly. If not, Harlos. Uh, if I Karen, if I haven't, I apologize. But because she had become known for her work on preterism under the pseudonym Dee Dee Warren, she published her Matthew twenty four commentary under that name. And it's called the it's it's called it's not the end of the world: a commentary on Matthew twenty four and a response to pop Christian eschatology. 
Um, this is not available in Logos, but it is available in Kindle and paperback, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and then the last uh, book that I'm going to recommend is The Apocalypse Code by Hank Hanegraaff. Now, Hank Hanegraaff has left the reservation. Um, he is no longer a, in my opinion, he's no longer embracing the Christian faith because he's become an Eastern Orthodox. Um, but long before he embraced Eastern Orthodoxy, um, he... Uh, did work on preterism, although he didn't like that word for it. Um, but he, this book, The Apocalypse Code, was influential for me as well. So those three books, R.C. Sproul's Last Days According to Jesus, D.D. Warren's It's Not the End of the World, and Hank Hanegraaff's The Apocalypse Code. By the way, Hank Hanegraaff's, uh, Hank Hanegraaff's The Apocalypse Code is another one of those books that's available in Logos Bible Software. So if you are a fan of Logos Bible Software like I am, um, then you can get this book in your digital library. Um, and I just did today. So I would encourage encourage you to get your hands on those. Um, now I want to turn, uh, before I wrap up, I want to answer um, a question that I just saw come up in the chat. Flaming Sword Apologetics asks, is Dee Dee Warren still active? She kind of disappeared. Um, she has disappeared from ministry. Uh, and this is, I was a little reluctant um, to recommend Dee Dee Warren's resources because in a few different ways, she has kind of gone off the reservation a little bit. Dee Dee, if you're watching, Karen, if you're watching, please forgive me for saying that if it offends you. But at least I think you would you would acknowledge that from many of our, from, from the perspective of many people like me, you have kind of gone off the reservation in certain ways. But that's not why she's kind of gone off the radar. She's fallen off the radar or disappeared because she has shifted her focus to politics. Politics. Um, she's a, a libertarian and, and an outspoken um, advocate for libertarianism. Um, but she's also gone off the reservation, in my opinion, in a couple of other areas. Uh, and for that reason, I'm a little bit reluctant to um, to recommend her resource. But uh, none of any problems that somebody might have with her today don't show up in her commentary. And so I still think it's worth um, picking up. Just the same with, with Hank Hanegraaff. Um, and then, and then Flaming Sword Apologetics goes on to say, R.C. Sproul's Last Days is a great intro, and you can see his videos on the subject on YouTube. That's right. So if you, uh, it is a great introduction to the topic. Like I said, it was very influential for me. Um, and if you go to, like, YouTube and search for R.C. Sproul Last Days or something like that, you'll see some YouTube videos that will be very helpful as well. Um, and then Jimmy Gray says in the chat, sad to hear about Hank Hanegraaff. Yeah, it is, it is sad to hear him um, become an Eastern Orthodox and leave the, um, the real Orthodox Christian faith. Um, but there is an open question in some people's minds about whether Hanegraaff has um, so totally embraced Eastern Orthodoxy that he can no longer be considered a Christian. Um, he claims, for example, that he that he and Eastern Orthodoxy um, believe that salvation is by grace through faith alone and isn't by works. And if that's true, then that might be a reason for thinking that um, uh, that, that maybe Hank has only partially embraced Eastern Orthodoxy, even if he doesn't know it, and as such may still be saved. Um, but I'll let that I'll leave that up to you guys to to look into. Uh, my friend Ben and and friend of the ministry says in a review of Didi's book. It says preterism is built on anti-Semitism and lies. Well, so consider I'm a preterist and I just recently debated Steve Gregg on Trinity Radio. Uh, and in that debate, I was the one saying that there is the New Testament never uses Israel or Jew to refer to Christians. It, it remains a reference to the people of Israel, the Jewish people. And I, and I uh, defend in that 
debate that the uh, text in Galatians where Paul calls some party the Israel of God, he's not talking about the church, he's talking about Jewish Christians. So there's no reason for thinking that preterism and anti-Semitism go hand in hand. I believe not only what I just said about Israel, but also that um, Israel uh, has a place in, in eschatology in our future. I think that one day the Jewish people are going to corporately embrace Jesus as her Messiah, um, and I think the land promise remains for the Jewish people and a number of other things. I don't think that the church has in any way replaced or uh, whatever language you want to use, replaced Israel. So no, there's no reason for thinking that preterism is built on anti-Semitism. Um, and it's, in my opinion, not based on any lies. I, I, I challenge anybody to find a um, flaw in the arguments that I've offered here today. Now, you might say, well, there are other texts I haven't looked at yet in Matthew 24 that could not possibly have been fulfilled in the first century. Um, but in a future episode, I'll demonstrate that they can. So, um, yeah, not the case. Preterism is Satan's biggest lie yet. Ben says, I agree with you. Turning to the one-star reviews is always good for some fun. Yeah, indeed it is. Um, but it's true. You know, there, there are a lot of uh, people that do think preterism is based on lies, not just because of the association that many futurists have between preterism and anti-Semitism, but also because of the association they see between preterism and hyper-preterism. So there are futurists who think that preterism is just sort of a, a, a part of a slippery slope to hyperpreterism and that if you um, and that if you embrace a preterist reading of biblical texts you will have no way to um, to avoid going full full you know uh, full high, uh, full heretic and become a hyperpreterist but that's patently and obviously false so take for example the book of revelation the, bu the book of revelation both begins and ends with explicit time statements that say that what john is prophesying are things that are soon to take place um, and that's one of the reasons why i and many other preterists take a preterist reading of the book of revelation but that's uh, in revelation 20 john explicitly introduces a very long period of time that could that would that can that must stretch well beyond things that must soon takes place because in revelation chapter 20 he says there will be a thousand years and it will only be after that that jesus will return raise the dead and um throw the wicked into hell and so forth so we preterists can say yeah everything up through revelation 20 was fulfilled in the past and what happens after that is going to be fulfilled in in our future because John put it right there. He said as much right there. The, the number thousand all throughout scripture, and this is something I'll go into more deeply in future episodes. The number thousand all throughout scripture is a, is a round number referring to an indefinitely large number. Um, D.D. Warren very often said, uh, asked people, who owns the cattle on the thousand and first hill? And what she's doing is alluding there to a text in the Old Testament which says, the Lord, Yahweh, owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Well, the author there isn't saying that Yahweh owns the cattle on only a thousand years. He's saying all the hills. Right? So a thousand is, is an, a, round, a large round number that is a sort of placeholder for a very uh, much larger, often indefinite num indefinitely large number. So the thousand years in the book of Revelation, we preterists and amillennialists and some postmillennialists can say that that thousand years in the book of Revelation is the period of time we're in right now. And so from that 
point before in Revelation, that was in our past, but from the end of the uh, millennium to the end of the book of Revelation is stuff to be fulfilled in our future. There's no reason for thinking that if you embrace preterism, you end up um, on a slippery slope, slope toward uh, embracing hyperpreterism. Indeed, the very first episode of this podcast, or not this podcast, but this YouTube show, uh, was me attacking hyperpreterism and defending orthodox belief in a future bodily resurrection of the dead. Um, Jimmy Gray asks, will you eventually go further into your disagreements with Chileism or premillennialism? Yes, I will. Um, I think premillennialism is untenable. I mean that. I don't think you can possibly do justice to the text uh, of Scripture and be a premillennialist. Um, and I'm speaking specifically about both, uh, not, not just Revelation 20, where the thousand years is mentioned. I, I, I don't think there's any way um, to legitimately read that in a premillennialist fashion. But also in 1 Corinthians 15, I think Paul makes it um, impossible to do justice to that text and be a premillennialist. So I'll go into those texts in a future episode of the show, Jim me um you said i think a debate between yourself and joel richardson on preterism versus premillennialism would be great jimmy if you want to reach out to joel richardson and ask him if he'd be interested i can help find a venue to do it um the uh, Explain Apologetics YouTube channel that has lately had James White and other people on for debate. James White on that channel just recently debated Jeff Riddle on uh, the Texas Receptus. Um, he would probably be interested in hosting a debate between me and Joel Richardson on that topic. Also, the Remnant Radio um, has, is starting to do uh, in-person, live, formal, moderated debates that they host in their studio. Uh, they just recently had Joel, uh, uh, Leighton Flowers and a Calvinist debating a particular Calvinist doctrine. Um, so I've got a number of different venues that I can reach out to uh, and see if they're interested in hosting a debate, if Joel Richardson would like to. So Jimmy, please reach out to him and see if he'd be interested. I, I do think, though, it, wouldn't, it shouldn't be a debate between preterism and premillennialism. That's mixing categories. Remember, remember those two taxonomies I said at the beginning of the show? There's the pre-mill, post-mill, amill taxonomy, and then there's the futurist, preterist, historicist, idealist taxonomy. So the proper debate between me and Joel Richardson would be either between pre-mill and amill or futurist and preterist. Um, but I'd do either one. Joel Richardson would be fun to, to debate. So Jimmy, uh, please reach out to him and see if you can hook something up. Um, Let's see here. Uh, Matt says, what's up, Chris? Crossover listener from Rethinking Hell here. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. For those of you watching who don't know, I um, do this show, The Apologetics, every other Monday. And on alternating Mondays, I do Rethinking Hell Live, which you can find at youtube.com slash rethinkinghell. Uh, so thank you for, uh, this was my hope, is that when I switched from doing Rethinking Hell Live weekly to doing it bi-weekly and then doing this show on alternating Mondays, Mondays, my hope is that some people who appreciate Rethinking Hell would come and watch this show. So thank you for that, Matt. Um, let's see here. Um, Flaming Sword Apologetics says there are more orthodox positions in hyperpreterism. He says full preterism, but that's not the right word for it, than that of Don Preston and the Max King Gang. Are you familiar with Ed Stevens? Yes, and Ed Stevens um, is also a heretic. Ed, Ed Stevens does take a different view of the um, the resurrection language in Scripture than the some of the other hyperpreterists, like Michael Miano, the guy that I debated. He thinks that the resurrection language in Scripture refers to um, the restoration of God's people. Um, Ed Stevens doesn't. He thinks it refers to a bodily resurrection, but in the past, number one, and number two, um, it's not a 
resurrection in the sense that the New Testament is talking about. Um, Ed Stevens thinks that the 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 body it's a body it's a body that we get when we're resurrected, but it's not a physical body. And again, it was something that happened in the past. And yet, what Paul what does Paul say to, when he writes to Timothy about Hymenaeus and Philetus? He says they're spreading gangrene, cancerous, vile heresy that's shipwrecking people's faiths when they say that the resurrection has already taken place. Well, guess what Ed Stevens says? That the resurrection has already taken place. So if, like me, you recognize the clear biblical truth that the resurrection has not taken place, because bodies haven't yet come up out of the graves, then Ed Stevens is every bit as much a heretic as Michael Miano, Don Preston, or Max King. So, no, I don't agree with you, Flaming Sword Apologetics, and this isn't any sort of offense or insult to you. I just um, urge you to stop calling it full preterism because there is no form of full preterism that is Christian, and it's not full of preterism. It's full of something else, but not preterism, and it's not Christian. It's not orthodox. Uh, thank you, Jimmy, for saying you'll reach out to Joel. Please do. And with that, I'm going to wrap things up. Thank you so much uh, for tuning in. I hope that this has been helpful for uh, and, and hopefully challenging for some of you that aren't already that weren't already familiar with preterism and the debate between preterism and futurism. Um, and like I said, in future episodes of the Apologetics, I'll go more deeply into the Olivet Discourse, and I'll also look at um, other reasons for thinking that preterism rather than futurism is the biblical teaching, and indeed that amillennialism rather than premillennialism is the biblical teaching. Postmillennialism is something I may cover here and there, but it's a little bit of a red-headed stepchild, and um, it's kind of a bizarre view anyway, so... We'll see. We'll see if I cover that. In fact, I could, honestly, I could see myself being a post-millennialist one day if I were persuaded, but I haven't been yet. So anyway, um, if you if you're intrigued, if this eschatology stuff is um, uh, uh, has been helpful, I'm glad, and I hope that you'll look forward to future episodes of the Apologetics when I explore it further. Now, um, before I end the stream, let me just give you a heads up that. Um, both of the next two episodes, the next episode of Rethinking Hell Live, which is a week from today, and the next episode of The Apologetics, which is two weeks from today, will be pre-recorded. And that's because at the end of this week, uh, my family and I are going to be flying out of town for vacation. So I've pre-recorded an episode of Rethinking Hell Live to air Monday, August, uh, October 12th at uh, 6 p.m. Pacific, its usual time. It'll be pre-recorded, but it will air at that time. Um, and then the next episode of The Apologetics I've recorded, and it will air on Monday, October 19th at 6 p.m. Pacific right here. Uh, it'll, it'll stream at the same time as usual. It's just it'll be a um, pre-recorded episode rather than a live one. Um, but let me tell you, you won't want to miss... At the very least, you won't want to miss the apologetics next episode because, um, you know, this is the first episode of the show where I've taken the theological disputes and, and brought them into the apologetics arena. Well, next week, uh, next episode of The Apologetics, we're going to be doing the same thing, but instead of eschatology, it's going to be soteriology. We're going to be talking about Calvinism and how it um, affects daily living in what I think and what my guests, because I interviewed some people, what my guests think um, is a positive way in which Calvinism affects daily living in apologetics. So I hope that that is something you look forward to. I hope that you'll enjoy that episode when it airs. Um, but either way, I will be back uh, for Rethinking Hell Live and The Apologetics after, uh, after those dates that I mentioned then. So without further ado, I'm going to say goodbye. Again, thank you for watching, whether you watched live or after the thing aired and was recorded. Either way, thank you for joining me, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.
have been your host, Chris Date, and thanks so much for watching The Apologetics, where we think together through what we believe, why we believe it, and not something else. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Until then, 